This podcast is brought to you by the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law with funding support from the NOAA Sea Grant College Program. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Hi there. Welcome to Episode 3 of the second season of the National Sea Grant Law Center's Law on the Half Shell podcast. If you've been joining us from this season's first episode, you know by now that I'm your host, Zachary Klein. I'm one of the Law Center's Ocean and Coastal Law Fellows, and this season of the Law in the Half Shell podcast is about COVID and coastal resilience. In the last episode, the Law Center's Executive Director, Stephanie Showalter-Otz, took us on a fascinating voyage of COVID's impact on U.S. cruise lines and how the industry has adapted. On this episode, we'll explore a different aspect of how our nation, indeed, how our species, interacts with the marine environment, the seafood industry. In terms of both the jobs that it creates and the food that it puts on our tables, the U.S. seafood industry is one of the nation's most important in more ways than one. But as we'll soon hear more about, the industry's resilience was put to the test when COVID reached U.S. shores, with significant disruptions occurring in nearly every aspect of production, labor, and sales in the nation's seafood industry. Interviews with Joshua Stoll, professor of marine policy at the University of Maine, as well as with Jamie Doyle and Angie Doer of Oregon Sea Grant, will shed light on COVID's consequences for the U.S. seafood industry, with a special focus on the role that the law played in the industry's reckoning with COVID. So, without further ado, let's crack open the shell of the U.S. seafood industry and see how it weathered the COVID-19 monsoon. With us now is Professor Josh Stoll. Josh is a professor of marine studies, especially marine policy at the University of Maine. He has done a considerable amount of research and writing on how COVID-19 has impacted the U.S. seafood sector, and we are very grateful that he is able to join us today. Josh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, just get right into the meat of it. You have uh, published a few papers that have delved into a couple different angles. To start, how did COVID-19 impact the seafood sector straight out the gate? Let's say March, April, May 2020. What did the U.S. seafood sector experience? The first thing that I'll say is that when we talk about seafood systems, or when we talk about seafood sectors, we're, we're talking about a lot of different subsectors and different sets of people, right? From harvesters all the way out through consumers, but that includes processing sectors, that includes distribution systems, that includes retail and distribution. And so there's a, there's a quite a variety of different types of people and businesses that are involved in the seafood sector. So um, one of the things that is interesting about the COVID-19 pandemic is that all segments of the seafood system 
through the entire supply chain were impacted in different ways. And that those impacts were, were quite uneven and they evolved through, through time. The other thing that I'll say is you mentioned the start of the pandemic in mid-March. And in lots of ways in the U.S., that's when lots of people started thinking about the pandemic. But you have to remember that some of the first cases of COVID-19 happened quite a bit earlier than that. And because seafood is such a globalized commodity, the seafood sector started to feel impacts from uh, COVID-19 earlier than that. And so things like American lobster, we we actually see signs of the price changing well before that middle of March, in part because the seafood system is so globalized. And we started seeing people in China, for example, changing their consumer, uh, their uh, buying habits and their behavior. And that had a ripple effect into the supply chain in the US. So some of the first impacts were, were actually even before the health impacts that we saw in the United States, which is kind of interesting. That is very interesting. You mentioned that there was a degree of unevenness in terms of how these impacts were felt, but what was the the general reaction and at least the initial concerns that were coming out of the industry? Yeah, so some of the earliest impacts were about the loss of markets, right? So COVID-19 was obviously a health impact, but it changed consumer behavior as well. And that was a global change in how behavior happened. And so some of the first things that we saw happening is that demand for seafood diminished really rapidly. And and part of that is because how consumers get seafood. Most of the consumption of seafood is in restaurants and people stopped going to restaurants and and suddenly there was a bottleneck in the supply chain, right? So if if restaurants aren't open and uh, typically seafood moves into restaurants, then, then there was no place for for seafood to go. And so we saw these sudden drops in prices for seafood. On top of that, we then had these problems with in the processing sector, right? Because people are in close proximity to one another. Um, they're in close, they're in cold, typically cold environments where it's a good vector for transmission of viruses. So we then we started having problems in the supply chain where seafood that was being processed, we had began to have outbreaks in processing facilities. So there was health impacts in processing facilities. So then there was a, a impact on how people were actually dealing, what people were actually dealing with seafood. You had some of the similar impacts on vessels. So there are a number of um, high profile, profile outbreaks on fishing vessels. People are again in kind of tight proximity, uh, close proximity. Um, so you saw outbreaks in, in on vessels as well. And then later in the process, you started seeing these really interesting innovations in the supply chain where people started to pivot. But some of the earlier pieces were the loss of, of markets, the problems in supply chains. Also, one other thing that was interesting is you also started to see impacts to the fishing seasons. So in some cases, fishing seasons were delayed. For example, we saw that in Maine with the Elver fishery here, and in some places, fisheries were temporarily closed. And to uh, circle back to a point you raised earlier, what were some of these innovations, some of these actions that restaurants, that suppliers, that others along the supply chain took in order to pivot or at least in order to attempt to overcome the barriers that COVID was creating for them? Yeah. So one of 
the areas that I've focused on quite a bit over the last year is in this transition to direct and local sales of seafood. So as I noted earlier, a lot of the seafood that people eat has conventionally been in in restaurants and places where you go and the seafood is prepared for you. People, of course, were at home, they were cooking more. And there was something about going to the grocery store and not seeing food on the shelves or not seeing products on the shelves that made people think about the vulnerabilities in our food system. And there was this real surge in interest in local and regional sales of food. And so we saw one of the the real bright spots uh, in the seafood sector was this pivot to direct sales of seafood. And that was happening both within small-scale operators, but also in larger-scale companies as well. Another pivot that we saw more and more of was the shift from distribution to the restaurant sector to distribution to retail. And seafood sales in retail space was consistently uh, seen as, as sort of through the roof and spiked in that space as well. Some of the research of, of yours that I've come across during COVID has been about COVID and its impact on seafood as a black swan event. So what I'm curious or what I'm hoping you can do is if you first explain to our audience what a black swan event is, and then second, if you wouldn't mind discussing how COVID either sort of exposed flaws in whether that's the supply chain or whatever it was back before COVID, or alternatively, how COVID has helped the seafood sector and maybe other sectors prepare for Black Swan events moving forward. One of the interesting things about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it it really did expose vulnerabilities in our food systems. And it exposed this idea that over the last several decades, our seafood economy has become more and more globalized. And there are real benefits of a globalized food system. There are economic benefits, there are employment benefits, and those have been talked about at length. But, but there are also, there are flaws in that. And part of that is the exposure to shock events and the, the dependencies that we have on getting product and moving product around the world and what happens when you kind of have a wrench in the supply chain, right? And, and how that, that falls apart. And I think, I think this in, in many ways has, has created this opportunity to think about why there's value in having a diverse set of supply chains and what, what a, a non-globalized food system could look like. And, you know, one of the things that has been interesting to me is I, I have spent almost a decade thinking about local and regional food, sy- food systems with a particular focus on seafood. And I've always thought about it as sort of separate from the globalized seafood system. And I think what has really struck me as interesting during the pandemic is how the two are really interconnected. And during this moment in time, when this global system has has faltered, there's been this real sort of pressure and push towards local and regional seafood systems. And it's not really necessarily an either or, but the, the value of having both systems in place and how important that is for 
the sustainability of fisheries, the sustainability of livelihoods. I, I think that has been something that I, I've that I've learned and that that has really stood out to me during this pandemic. Understandably, it's uh, it is incredible the kind of insights that COVID has has conferred while we've had the chance to observe its impacts in real time, ruminating from the comfort, no doubt, of uh, working from home, a home office of one kind or another. To transition just uh, a little slightly, one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you and that we were able to make this conversation happen is because your background is in marine policy. We have had the chance to talk to folks who uh, mostly focus on marine sciences, and of course that is incredibly important. There were a lot of um, important takeaways from the hard data that sort of came out of COVID. But one of the things that I'm really interested in for this um, this podcast, this episode especially, is the the role that law and policy played in COVID. Both you know the initial reactions, and then um, how policymakers, how lawmakers, uh, and other legal institutions adjusted as the pandemic wore on. So I, I would like to ask what, how exactly did law, did policy affect COVID? How did it make things worse? Did it make things better? And what did institutions learn along the way? I think one of the things that stands out to me as important, not just probably for the seafood sector, but probably more broadly is the role that government played in providing resources to different types of communities in a, in a time of crisis. And if we look around the world, that, that was a general response across the board, whether it was naming seafood harvesters essential employees or providing loans or direct payments, or uh, in some cases, pivoting so fishers could use their seafood to, su to support food insecurity. And I, I think that sort of those resources were particularly evident in wealthy countries like the US, but we saw those those initiatives around the world. And, and that to me has been, stands out as like a really critical part of, of the role of government and the role of policy in this, in this work and, and really providing resources to ensure that supply chains remain functional to ensure that people maintain their livelihoods, ensure that food and food systems keep on moving, you know, despite the, the falters that we saw, the, the issues that we saw, by and large, at least in the U.S. context, people uh, re remained employed. We still had, we still had food in our food systems moving through the, the process. So to me, that stands out as a particularly important part of this. And then um, you know, just to be a little bit more specific, I think about the role that the PPP loans played in the seafood sector took a huge advantage of that. There was direct payments, I think $300 million um, to the seafood industry to help sustain the industry. People took advantage of those resources. Those ended up getting allocated from the National Marine Fishery Service down to the state level and uh, executed on a state by state at a state by state process. I think all of those those resources were really important for sustaining the industry. And uh, I suppose that it begs a question, or at least it, it makes you wonder uh, in the alternative, what constraints legal or policy wise did uh, seafood suppliers and harvesters face. For example, 
one that comes to mind is that I know that some states or some municipalities will have restrictions on shellfish growers' ability to sell directly to consumers at farmers' markets. So I was curious whether it's um, more at a local level or closer to the federal level. Were there any constraints that, as far as you heard or could tell from your research, seem to particularly frustrate harvesters and, and others in the supply chain? And how did they deal with it? How did institutions deal with it, et cetera? Since you mentioned the, the piece about regulations that prevent local and direct sales, I'll piggyback off of that for a second and say that that was a bottleneck for certain growers and, and producers of seafood and something that we heard about quite a bit. But there was also real, real uh, regulatory innovation and, and advancements during the pandemic. In Rhode Island, for example, there was an emergency bill passed that allowed harvesters to direct sell their seafood. My understanding is they've now taken that bill and, and uh, institutionalized that. So there, there was some innovation that happened in the regulatory space um, that I, I think was was quite interesting and, and worth looking at as, as models for change. You know, I think one of the things from a, a crisis management standpoint that really stands out to me is that during the pandemic, there were a huge amount of resources made available to the seafood sector. And through the USDA, through the National Marine Fisheries Service, through federal, other federal programs that were made available to, to all people and all, all business owners. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is there wasn't a clear plan for what we were trying to accomplish with, with those resources, except to keep people in, in business. And that felt somewhat reactive. And I can't help but wonder, like, what if we had a national food system or food security plan in place to, for dealing with crises and shocks, and you know how how would the response have differed? Some of the feedback that I've heard from USDA is in various conversations is, wow, if we were to do this again, like how different their approach would have been, and it makes me think about like, well, what kind of long term planning is necessary at the the state and federal level around shock and crisis, and you know, certainly I hope we don't ever have a pandemic again, but I think it's unrealistic to think we won't have other global shocks. Um, we've had several of them in the last several decades. And I think, you know, as our food systems become more globalized, I think it's it's quite realistic to think that the, the intensity and frequency of, of global shocks will only increase and that will affect food systems. We're almost a year and a half into the pandemic. As you said, in many ways, it is still a COVID economy. What have the successes been? What have some of the shortcomings been? And, you know, case in point, are we going to be back to normal? Are we back to normal now? How does the outlook seem moving forward? Well, I think we're anything but back to normal. But our anything but back to normal landscape today is very different than it was in the middle of March of 2020. Right now, we're in this reopening phase in, in our country, and people are really burned out of thinking about the pandemic. And we're seeing this incredible sort of surge in demand at restaurants and the, the seafood sector is, is capitalizing on that. 
the demand for seafood is really high. And that might change with, with the Delta variant and sort of future evolutions of the pandemic. Um, but right now, seafood is really well positioned. Consumers have been connected to seafood through these direct sales and now they're getting back out into the world. And from everything that I can tell, the, the demand is really, really strong in the seafood sector that likely will change as things continue to change um, uh, in the coming months, in the coming year. I think we're on the cusp of a new normal. And, and I think um, there's all the seafood industry has learned a lot. I think the government sector has learned a lot. Um, but, you know, one of my takeaways is that we're really reimagining what seafood supply chains look like. When I started working on local and direct seafood marketing 10 years ago, it was very niche. And I don't think um, it was really part of the broader conversation. That's different today. There is a demonstration that this approach to distribution can scale, either at the individual business level or many businesses doing this type of distribution. I think consumers have demonstrated a willingness and ability to eat seafood at home. And I don't think they're going to forget that in, in the near term. And with that, that sort of reimagining of supply chains, I, I think that has all kinds of implications of who participates in the sector and how people participate and how food moves. And, and there will be trade-offs to that for sure. And winners and losers to um, these new ways of doing business. Um, but I don't, I don't anticipate we're gonna be back to January 2020 and, um, and what the CP system looked like then. I am joined now by Jamie Doyle and Angie Dorr from Oregon Sea Grant. Angie and Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. I, as I mentioned earlier, you two were authors of a report that, that synthesized surveys you had sent out over the course of COVID. So if you want to jump right in, um, I'm not sure if you want to right, start with the really interesting stuff or, or give a little more context. We could start with saying that we did a survey to the Oregon seafood industry at the beginning of the pandemic, trying to look and learn what, how it was impacting them, but also how it was potentially impacting them, what they thought might happen to them. And so our findings were really formative in those beginning parts of the pandemic. And we will, we'll talk about the results from that, but we'll also be going back in the future to kind of look at what actually happened, not just what they thought was going to happen and what we captured from our original survey, which was, again, early on. So those results are, were really telling to us, but not every fishery had gone through the pandemic at that point. So for example, our Albacore tuna fishery is uh, later in the summer and our survey went out in the um, early summer, late spring, early summer. So what those fishermen might be projecting were things that they thought might happen and we'll need to come back and do a more thorough you know, analysis on what did happen with that fishery, for example. So just kind of context setting of what, um, what our survey was in that sort of moment in time. Angie, did you want to add anything to that? No, that's exactly right. Um, I will say that formally, um, you know, as Jamie said, the survey was done fairly early on and uh, we do have plans to work with some um, potential graduate students or others to do a follow-up 
but just that informally, we've also been in multiple conversations, obviously, with the fishing fleet. And so we can speak informally to some of what we've heard, but in terms of formal data, looking at some of the longer term impacts, um, that's still in process. Great. That's still a, a great starting point to talk about the report. Uh, even though there were some fisheries or there are uh, some fisheries that weren't covered or some follow-up that's needed, can you tell us a little bit about what is in the report, what fisheries are covered and what was being asked about or, or what some of those um, early points of interest were when it came to the people who were responding to it? Sure. Um, I'll start off again, Angie, and pass it over to you. We started out looking um, broadly at the seafood industry, talking about retailers, processors, harvesters, both wild capture and aquaculture, but then keeping it within that industry and not doing it more broadly to the whole coast, thinking that our ability to understand the impacts probably would be best understood within the kind of confines of that industry. And one of the first things that came out of this was that everybody felt like they had already been impacted and they were all anticipating being impacted. So that um, was pretty a, a pretty strong um, response initially that everybody was feeling the impacts of COVID. And when we looked at our data kind of across the, across the state, so from the north end of the coast to the south end of the coast, which is, you know, it's a long, large state, so it's a, a, a good distance. And we looked at different gear types and we looked at different communities. And basically it was all pretty consistent in the responses. So that part, there wasn't any one particular thing that stood out. There's a few nuances, but they were pretty consistent in there, you know, anticipating and feeling impacts and loss of markets was really the big one that stood out. The sudden need to find a place for the product. And obviously both harvesters were feeling this as well as processors who were then kind of stuck holding the product at that point. What did your report find in terms of new increased costs? Um, was it just loss of business that the seafood industry was just struggling with? Or um, were there other pressures that rose up along the way too? Obviously, early on, the initial pressures were, I mean, in concerns were just, there wasn't a lot of understanding about COVID-19, about how it was spread, about how it could be contained. And so several of our respondents shut down entirely. They weren't going out fishing because they weren't sure if it was safe to go out with their crews. You know, some of the processors uh, weren't, you know, sure how to respond. Um, even some of the early guidance is very difficult to do. You know, maintain six feet social distancing in a processing facility is very difficult. On some of our vessels, it's not physically possible to do. Um, and so given that there was so much uncertainty, uh, a lot of the restaurants were shut down entirely. A lot of the markets were shut down. Uh, a lot of the fishing vessels were simply not going out. Um, and so those are, I mean, but you still have costs, right? So they had a lot of costs in terms of maintaining vessels, maintaining restaurants, markets, paying rent, but no money coming in. So that was a, that was a very large concern. Um, and then once people did start, you know, realizing that there could be some activity, um, there are costs associated with, you know, cleaning surfaces regularly, providing masks, providing gloves, providing hand sanitizer. Um, I know our state, and I'm sure many others, did what we could to help with those costs, you know, providing PPE, personal protective equipment and things like that to our local industry. But even so, they're, they're just um, operating costs that you have to deal with. A lot of the restaurants had to come up with new business models because they couldn't do uh, indoor dining. And so suddenly you're trying to figure out how to do seafood, which typically is an indoor dining experience. And you're trying to figure out how to do it uh, with curbside pickup or delivery. And so there were 
costs and challenges associated with all of those changes. And the processors had all this extra product and cold storage that they were holding. So there's kind of that added cost of buying product when you're not necessarily selling it while you're still storing it. Also, not in our survey per se, but there's a lot of question about how many restaurants will be there after COVID. And so I live in a small town. It has been fairly resilient from what I can just see um, anecdotally, but a lot of seafood goes to fairly high-end restaurants as far as a, a trajectory. And some of the chefs that I've been hearing from recently in Portland, which is our larger, our largest metro area in Oregon, have shut down like whole series of restaurants. So they've maybe had several different sites and now they have one. And so I it will be a really interesting view to see where things are standing. Obviously, if we were using the example of Portland, I should say there were a lot of other things going on last summer that led to downtown restaurants not being open. There was a lot of protesting happening. There was um, even in a little bit later, there was a whole problem with wildfires and smoke. And so there's there's a lot going on on top of COVID and restrictions. But I, I will be curious to see where the sort of traditional high-end seafood markets are. And that was one of the pieces where initially the products that end up in restaurants tend to be the higher end products. And so that market went away, whereas the more common products that you might buy at home and be comfortable cooking, we weren't seeing, which probably leads into what our response was, now that I think about it, um, to the survey um, with our colleagues at the department, Oregon Department of Agriculture, they had started an Eat Oregon Seafood Initiative to get education and awareness and um, motivation out for people to try to cook it at home and to try to move some of this product that was not moving because of the restaurant closures. And that effort really, again, is sort of trying to get people more comfortable with and aware of seafood products. So the online uh, social media campaign had different high-end chefs that were cooking and posting recipes. And then there's a website that accompanies this that has locations where you can buy seafood, information about the seafood, recipes, um, again, all, and this is an ongoing effort to try to help people learn about and understand local seafood so that they're both comfortable cooking it um, and aware of the industry, all those sort of sea grant types of goals around seafood and education. I, I'm curious, the, there was some earlier mention about pivoting to uh, direct to consumer sales and uh, just based on the survey results and, and the report more generally, did you find that, what, what were the key takeaways, I guess, in terms of how these companies managed to weather the, the storm of COVID? It's probably really dependent um, business by business, but we did see several, many smaller companies switching and trying to do more direct sales. And we did see this, this kind of gradual and accelerated uh, switch to, you know, curbside dining where everyone would just kind of, you know, they moved, they shut off half the parking lot and turned it into tables. And that was especially, I think, possible during the summer months. Uh, into the fall. And so we did see this transition into, you know, adapting to new styles, whether it was creating the to-go cook at home boxes, which I, I love that business model, or whether it was, you know, you can just pick it up yourself and take it home after we've cooked it for you, or, you know, you can come and have this fine dining experience. It'll just be, you know, outdoors instead of indoors. And so we, we saw, uh, I think a lot of creative solutions um, in terms of, of how to address this, that you know, people learned from each other uh, and kind of built off what other people were doing, I think, to come up with solutions. One of the topics that I'm really interested in, because it, it was mentioned in some of the comments that were highlighted in your report, is concerns about seafood products being kept in storage and then causing the, a shift in supply and demand that would lower prices long term. 
but I'm curious, just, you know, sort of knee jerk reaction from what you've seen where a lot of those fears uh, realized when it came to the long-term impact on seafood prices. When you look at the, initially the raw data on landings versus value, it does look like they landed around the same amount of some species last year and that the value was less. And so how much of an impact that is really probably depends on the scale of your boat or your operation and how big you are and all those things. And I don't know the specifics, but it does look like the volume wise for most of the fisheries looked like it was, you know, pretty comparable to previous years, but the value was less. But I, and I don't know, it'll be interesting to see, you're asking sort of long-term, whether this is something that only happens for a year or two, or whether that has some kicking off long-term trajectory. Also, as far as like, what are the long-term impacts of COVID and these like um, shifting to new models? There's been a lot of discussion around how these new models have been coming along for a while. And so this um, COVID was almost maybe sort of kind of not a catalyst, but kind of kickstarting more businesses thinking, continuing to think about that and that that type of thinking is not going to go away. Also, the interest in direct marketing comes and goes depending on the market. And so over the years on the West Coast, they've seen interests in selling off the dock more when the price is not as good at the processor. And so that cycle will probably continue. And COVID is one example of something where people had to switch. It's a very unique example, but that has been, you know, over time that has come up more than once. So I'll just add a couple of things. Um, one is that, and Jamie, I'm surprised you didn't talk about this. One is that one of the things we're trying to do with Eat Organ Seafood and seafood literacy more general is make people aware of a lot of the benefits of frozen seafood. Oftentimes when people are going out for uh, seafood or buying it, they have this idea that they want fresh right off the boat seafood, which, you know, has been a really, really good marketing ploy by, you know, whoever is marketing that way, but isn't necessarily reflected of, of quality or taste or texture or anything else we associate with seafood. Um, in fact, a lot of seafood is, is flash frozen on the vessel itself. And so I think there's just this idea that if we are freezing product, then somehow it's, it's, we're, we're, we're not having as good a quality of, of product. And I, and that's just not true. Um, Jamie has been involved in some projects that have done taste testing and found that in fact to be um, the opposite of true. Um, there are a lot of benefits to, you know, immediately freezing something and then reducing handling and things like that until you're actually ready to prepare and serve it. So that's been kind of one of the things we've looked at is this idea that maybe we have more frozen product, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, it still is excellent seafood. On the flip side of that, part of what we're seeing, I think, with some of these, these uh, longer term impacts, um, and again, this is, I'm going to say anecdotal, this is what I've been hearing from the fleet, is that uh, it's put them in a, in a harder bargaining position with some of the processors when they're trying to come up, you know, negotiate price because they are going out now and, and catching product for this year. And some of the processors still have product from last year. And that's not necessarily just because it was frozen. That's because the traditional markets weren't there. And so, like I said, that live export wasn't there last year. And so product that typically would have been exported live was frozen. And so there's just more product on hand than you would see traditionally. We are trying to get information out and making sure people are aware of things that we need to think about local habits and traditions and restrictions. Where I live, when I moved up here to Oregon, you know, I was surprised to learn I can't even get like, say, Sirius XM or satellite radio on the coast. It's just it's too rural, too winding, too mountainous. Um, and so you really do have to think about how communities are operating and how people are able to access information to make sure we're doing it. And so we do try our best to make sure we're putting things out through a variety of means. 
huge thanks to Josh Stoll, Angie Doerr, and Jamie Doyle for their time and for illuminating the effects of COVID on the U.S. seafood industry in today's episode. The next episode of Law on the Half Shell features the Law Center's Law Fellow, Olivia Deans, explaining COVID's impact on U.S. fisheries. You will be able to find episode four on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us or like us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to keep up with all the latest at the National Sea Grant Law Center. As always, thanks for listening.